issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and if you are new here, I wish you a warm, warm welcome. And if you like what you hear today, be sure to follow YDHTY and share it with one friend you think might like it too. Now, if you've been following along for the last few weeks, we've been diving deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the mechanics of the global economy and the forces that drive it. And the one thing we left out and the thing left out in all economic models, as it turns out, is energy, which is somewhat ironic given we started down this thread talking about the war in Ukraine and the relationship between the US dollar and oil markets. Go figure. Well, Carrie King, assistant director and research scientist of the Energy Institute at the University of Texas in Austin, has dedicated his work to figuring out the impact between energy markets and economic growth. And he lays out a compelling case in his book, The Economic Superorganism Beyond Competing Narratives on Energy, Growth, and Policy. In this episode, we discuss how both population growth and economic growth are linked to the availability of energy, how our current economic model is linked to a source of energy whose supply is dwindling, and the link between energy prices and political polarization. It was a sobering conversation, which is a fancy way of saying it gave me the scaries, but it's one we all need to hear. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. What we've been doing on this podcast for the last, I'd say like six or seven weeks, is really going down a rabbit hole that started with the war in Ukraine. And I told you before we started recording that I kind of wish I didn't know as much as I know now, because the more I read, the more complex it gets. And the more complex it gets, the more we get down to, I guess, what you could consider the bare essentials of, of survival. And so we've gone from the war in Ukraine to monetary policy, and now from monetary policy to sort of the environmental confines or the raw materials that make it up. And that's where you come in. So I'm hoping you can help us all really you know, get a better grasp as to some of the drivers behind not just like the polarity in this country and, and not just maybe some of the conflicts abroad, but also just the mechanics of, of the environment, the, the water in which we swim carry is the way I'll put it. So really, we're going to be diving into your book, The Economic Superorganism, during this conversation. And and I think a great way to tee it up is really to talk about the economy and the way we talk about the economy, because you really strike to the heart of this in your book. And you, what do most economic models get wrong about the way the economy works? Well, somewhere in the book there, I have kind of the classic quote from George Box, and all models are wrong, and some are useful. What you know, I focus on in terms of what most economic models get wrong is kind of the way they think about long-term growth. So kind of the standard way is probably okay for, you know, thinking a few years out, maybe five years, which is to say the structure of the economy doesn't change very much uh, in a few years. But if you want to think about something like a low-carbon energy transition or the changes from pre-industrial to industrial type economies with fossil fuels, then, you know, those are, that's a humongous change, not only just growth, it's not growing the same thing. In the book, I say it's, you know, it's like you're a, a the economy is a small circle, you know, in the early 1900s, and then now it's a really big triangle, right? Yeah. Not only is it bigger, but it's also a different shape, a different thing has different structure. And so most economic models can't characterize essentially or have a trouble with characterizing why or how the economy can grow long term and how it in some sense might necessarily change its structure during that growth. And there's a lot of insights from uh, biology, and I hint to some in the book, that gives some some clues into how this we might think about this. So essentially, most economic models aren't fundamentally thinking about the role of energy uh, in this long-term growth. Uh, what is its cost? How does energy actually 
uh, flow in the economy, what is it doing, what are resources doing at a very fundamental level, and tracking it explicitly. So they kind of, everything's usually just tracked as money instead of the, the physical nature of the economy. So the broad answer is they just sort of don't actually explicitly consider the physical nature of the economy, which is to say uh, the economy, as the book suggests, can think of as a super organism that extracts materials from the environment, physical materials, mass, the concept, the thing we call energy resources as well. And then it uses this mass and energy resources to structure itself, to grow and to grow and maintain itself. And that's kind of the fundamental basis. Yeah. And so for a engineer or a physical scientist, you know, it starts from there. And then you say, well, let me tack on this idea we call money or these other things in the economy that people want to talk about. Uh, an economist kind of trained to start with the money and then maybe never get into the physical aspect. Yeah, I find that part really interesting. And maybe to give, maybe to say it in, in the dumbest possible way, you know, to give, give kind of a stupid example, like let's say, you know, the classic economic model says, you know, people are willing to pay a certain price for chicken. And if there's less chicken out there, chicken gets more expensive. And so farmers breed more chickens and the price reaches an equilibrium. But let's just say hypothetically chickens go extinct then it doesn't matter how high, there's no equilibrium there. They just no longer exist. So there's no way to get any more chicken. No more chicken for anybody. Is that a fair summary? Um, yeah, certainly. Well, I guess they would say, well, we, we find a substitute for chicken. Right? Yeah. So and in my book, you know, it's phrased around narratives like in some sense. So there's energy narratives and economic narratives. Yeah. Energy narratives are, these are both semi-strawman ideas, but they're indicative of the conversation and the general public and a lot of elected officials. So renewable energy and fossil energy on sort of one each spectrum of the energy narratives. And then on the economic narratives, kind of techno-optimism and techno-realism. Yeah. So the typical view of is a techno-optimistic view, which means you can always find a substitution. So if you run out of chickens, then we'll just eat, we'll eat quail or we'll eat dove, you know, or whatever. And then we'll be fine and maybe just the same or, or better. So in some sense, there's always, there's always an alternative down the, down the road. From an energy standpoint, this is understandable. We don't use just one energy resource. We use multiple. And, you know, are we finding substitutes? This is a question. You know, people try to compare energy, but that's kind of what the book is about. How do people compare different energy options and are they substitutes or not? And how do people talk past each other on these issues? But one of the takeaways from the data is that we haven't substituted anything. We just add on an additional energy resource when we find it to the existing ones we have, right? We're not, it's not that we stopped using biomass for energy. We're just using, you know, more, slightly more biomass than ever. We just tacked on, you know, natural gas, coal, oil, wind power, solar power. So these other things are substituting for energy resource. They're adding on to the total energy supply. So we haven't, we haven't necessarily swapped anything out like there's never been a full-on transition of energy source it's just sort of been additive effectively is what you're pretty saying. much i wanted i want to jump back for a second because one of the things we should probably define too is when you talk about energy it seems like there's kind of two parts to it there's there's the raw material that makes up energy so it could be oil coal uranium what have you and then there's actually the power produced can you just define those things because that's going to be i think important as we get a little further along in this conversation all uh, right so energy you know in the book i just kind of quote uh richard feynman nobel prize physics this description of energy but it's something along the lines of you know energy is effectively a concept that we came up with not like you find energy in the world and, you know, just pick it up and say, well, I got to give a name for this thing that I picked up. It's like, you can't pick it up. It's an idea in our head. So we have to derive this idea. And essentially energy is the word we give to a description of when things change in the world around us and something changes its form, changes its location, uh, changes its shape. Uh, and we want to describe some quantity that is consistently quantified or we can consistently quantify to describe the, these changes, the quantity and the magnitude of these changes, we essentially call it energy. So anytime some, something moves from one place to another, it, it takes energy and we can track this quantity. If it, um, if it gets destroyed or put together, it takes energy to put it together. Uh, you try to quantify the change of energy from one form to another. And if you add up all these changes and you don't get the same quantity, the assumption is you've missed something. Okay. Yep. And then you have to find the thing you're missing. And there's some other kind of energy that you weren't accounting for or you forgot to account for, something like that. Yeah. So that's that's effectively the sort of abstract, maybe too abstract view of energy. But, uh, you know, we take, quote unquote, energy sources in the environment 
and we use them to move things around. And we call something an energy resource effectively if it's you know an organized form of energy of matter that wants to degrade as heat. If we if we kind of give it a little help, it'll degrade down to heat and on its way of degrading down to heat, like burning coal or something, we can make something useful out of it. Or we can do some work out of it, I guess if you would say. And that that kind of gets back to the the discussion we had on economic models just a little bit ago, because you know, the economy might grow, let's just say we target a growth rate of three percent per year. Well, we're not getting 3% more resources every time we grow. So eventually we hit kind of a maximum carrying capacity. And and to your point, you know, we're really not so much adding resources in so much as we're shuffling them around and, and using them differently, right? Right. So yeah, the normal, if you would say neoclassical growth model is that, you know, GDP equals some equation, which is technology factor times uh, how much capital there is, times how much labor there is. And then labor and capital are seen as substitutable for each other over time, which is not an unreasonable thing to say in the sense that, you know, pre-industrial, it was there was a lot of labor, people using their muscles. And then we found, you know, sort of figured out how to use fossil fuels with machines. And then we, you know, we don't work this much fewer people use actual physical labor in farming and industrial countries. We have industrial manuf- uh, manufacturing and agriculture. So in some sense, you're like, okay, I've substituted capital for labor. And that seemed, you know, there's a machine, we're just calling that capital. And then they have this technological growth factor called total factor productivity, which is by definition, uh, when you look at the data, you would say I have these economic growth data, I have this capital data, and I have these labor data. And then if the capital and labor don't describe all the GDP, then it's all called technology or this technological factor productivity. So this this TFP is then called technology, yet it's by definition a thing that's not described. It's by definition a thing that's the part of the equation not described by the theory, or the part of growth not described by the theory. And that's maybe all well and good, but not every equation can describe everything that goes on in the world. That's the definition of a simple equation. The problem is that this undescribed technological or t- total factor productivity is about half of economic growth. So if we have a model of economic growth that explains only half of economic growth, then that seems not very good. And the research you know, over the last 20 years, looking into applying energy more explicitly to the concept of economic growth effectively says, well, if you, if you calculate how much energy resources we extract from the environment times the efficiency at which we convert them into work, uh, which like you know, estimates are like electricity or the motion in a car, and the, you know the motion out of motors, electric motors, and lighting. So if you calculate that amount of work, then the work done by the economy is pretty much proportional to GDP. So GDP now looks like a proxy measure for the actual physical work done by the economy. And so myself and other researchers now, you know, this is kind of the idea we pursue is like, okay, how can we test this idea more? And make and I'm trying to make models where I explicitly calculate work done in a, in a sort of macroeconomic growth model, and the implication inherent in there is uh, or in, inside this kind of this kind of research says that this total factor productivity which is uh, essentially has to be an input assumption into neoclassical growth modeling is fairly accurately described by the rate of change of efficiency of machines so as machines go from you know whatever 10 percent to 15 percent efficient at converting energy resources into work that's effectively what technology is so you can say technology is making a more thermodynamically efficient use of energy to convert into things like convert into my computer. Like, so by taking all the materials of the world and turning it into my computer that we're using here to communicate, you know, this computer is a, is a, is a quantification. If we we could try to quantify how much work was required to make this computer or this this computer embodies a certain amount of work done. And then the rest of the energy consumed is, you know, goes off as heat into the environment. But this computer is, is, is a piece of, Material, it's a highly organized piece of materials, right? Very precisely machined and modified and refined materials in here, microchips. And that's a, a measure of our work done. Mm-hmm. And so just to make sure I'm, I'm following along here correctly, then, you know, when we look at the traditional GDP model, GDP is really more measuring kind of output in a way. And there's this measurement of how efficiently energy is put to work in total factor productivity, correct? Am I correct so far? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, we would say that total factor productivity is seems to be a proxy measure for 
changes in efficiency. Got it. Got it. So thermodynamic efficiency. And the input there, of course, is the energy. So the input there is whatever we're using to fuel those machines, right? All right. Right. So you have to have, you know, to do work, work you say work equals energy times efficiency. Mm -hmm. If you want more work done, you can have more energy and say constant efficiency, or you can have the same amount of energy and increasing efficiency, or of course you can increase both. Mm -hmm. uh, if you decrease energy consumption, then you will do less work. And this sort of gives you an intuitive feel for why when energy prices get high and people can't afford as much, well, if you can't afford as much and you're not buying as much, that means you're actually buying less energy. So there's actually less energy running the economy. And that's why you might expect a recession. Yeah. You're literally doing less work. And so if we, and there's some, there's some research you have in your book too, that I want to dive into because it sketches this out quite well. And one of the things I found really interesting was that you actually studied economic data from England that dates back to 1300 and laid out a relationship between energy and work and or energy and economic growth. And can you talk a little bit about, about that? Right. So, so this data from 1300 or, you know, estimated from 1300 to, you know, roughly the present are, you know, courtesy of you know, Roger Fouquet was at the London School of Economics and then other statisticians that he leveraged as well. But it's, yeah, this is this kind of long-term data series and then looking at this for the United, the entire world on a much shorter uh, timescale is, is one of the drivers for me writing the book, which is to communicate this, this long-term, say, say, cost of energy. And if we think pre-industrial that, you know, energy was most pretty much biomass and the work done in the economy was mostly muscle work, you know, either animals getting fed grains or some kind of fodder and it's doing work in the fields or humans are also doing work in the field. So it's mostly work done by muscles. And this is part of quantifying the work done by the economy, right? You would, you would have to think about this and then much less muscle work done in the economy today, or at least certainly per person, and then more done by machines and with, with fuel inputs. And so the insightful thing from these data from Roger, where and he's estimating prices of different kinds of fuels, prices of coal, price of wood, price of food. And if you add up how much money was spent on essentially food and what we would make, you know, call energy traditionally, mostly wood and, and fodder pre-industrial times, if you add that all up and you compare it to the metrics of GDP, which are, you know, calculated by us today and back calculated by the researchers, there was no concept of gross domestic product. And, you know, 1300, it only came out in the 1900s, right? So, so these are all back estimates and I think that England has these data because of the, you know, the sort of religions or monks keeping track of, of data is, is one of the reasons why these data can at least somewhat be approximated. Anyway, the point of looking at this is you have all the money spent on energy, which includes food for people doing work, and compare it to GDP or divide it by GDP, it's a relatively high percentage. It's 50, 60 percent of GDP. And then how much is being spent on energy today? And it's a much lower percentage. So in some sense, industrialization is characterized by the ability of the economy to grow uh, to the extent that less effort has to be put into the energy and into the energy sector. So if the energy sector becomes much more productive, then much less money, much less energy, much less human labor, much less capital, less everything uh, has to be put into the energy sector relative to the other things going on. So GDP goes up really fast. The amount of money spent on the energy sector also increases because the economy is also growing. It just increases at a much slower rate than the rest of the economy. And the reason this can occur is gets into the idea of what we call net energy or energy return on energy invested. Uh, if you have an energy resource where you know you put one hour of labor into it and you get you know I don't know you know ten units of work out of it, uh, you can do a lot more stuff. You got these extra nine units of energy or work that can do other things compared to if you put one unit of energy or one hour of work in a process, you only get two units of energy out of it, right? There's just not enough energy left over to do anything else. You're just kind of surviving. So this is effectively what fossil fuels and the machines gave us. It's like all of a sudden you can put the same amount of energy and labor into some effort, but you get way more energy out. And so, well, you can start doing other things. Let's build factories. Let's build more houses. Let's, let's do all kinds of other things. Yeah. Um, so once that happens, then the cost of energy relative you know, cost is in some sense always a relative metric, but in the, this sense, I'm saying the cost is, you know, money spent in the whole economy on energy and food divided by GDP that decreases. And 
by looking at the data of this long-term time series and looking at it for the United States, looking at it for the world, sort of came to the conclusion that around the year 2000 was the cheapest food and energy on this metric ever. In some sense, you could think it'd been declining since industrialization uh, for certainly industrial countries, but by tantamount the world GDP as well, which is dominated by Western Europe and the U.S. until certainly until World War II and then a little bit less so afterwards. Um, but on this metric, uh, this metric goes down into the year 2000. It, China sort of joins the WTO and starts becoming sort of the manufacturing uh, location of the world. So they put a lot of pressure on commodities. Energy and food prices go up until 2008 with the financial crisis. Then there's some fluctuating. But effectively, you know, on a broad stroke, I would say energy and food costs have been roughly as a percentage of GDP have been roughly flat since the year 2000 with some volatility in there. And that's a unique trend compared to the entire history of growth, right? So I'll just end on this. So sort of look at these data and ask the question, can food and energy costs go to 0% of GDP? And I tend to think, no, the only way that can happen is if they're literally free, takes no effort to get them, or GDP goes to infinity. And so if it can't go to zero, then how low can this metric go? And what happens if it can't get smaller? Because economic growth is essentially, uh, in some sense, predicated on making this number smaller. Yeah, I may. I that's so that I may ask you to repeat that part again a little later on because that's a very key point to I think this this conversation. I want to I want to jump back for a second though and and sort of do maybe summarize pre-industrial or the the transition from pre-industrial to the industrial era, which is, you know, it sounds like pre-industrial the 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 energy market was effectively food right the energy sector was effectively what you fed your laborers and what you fed your animals to do labor and the right. and economic growth in a lot of cases you know could be argued you know there's there's certainly some efficiencies that were introduced into agriculture it was just a lot slower moving and then post industrialization all of a sudden this opened up a whole new assortment of options in terms of energy really kind of decoupled the relationship of labor to the food supply and allowed us to do the work necessary with less human labor effectively. I want to jump into the present. I really want to like start with the post-World War II era because that seems to be a real inflection point in your book. And, And you really, in your book, you kind of break it out into three parts. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through each of those because I think that'll help give us all an understanding as to how we got to where we are today. Starting off, like post-World War II, what's happening in terms of energy? What What's happening in terms of the economy? So coming out of World War II, and then for the next few decades, it's kind of, or three decades roughly, until the early 70s, so almost three decades is kind of what I roughly called phase one. And in some sense, you could say phase one is the anomaly of economic growth within the anomaly of larger context of economic growth. So what that means is the the roughly three decades after World War II were an extremely high growth rate energy consumption and an extremely high growth rate of GDP. So energy consumption increased at roughly 4% a year, mostly driven by oil becoming a dominant source of uh, supply of energy during this time. Before World War II, oil was not widely used. After coming out of World War II, oil sort of skyrocketed in, in use, largely because of you know oil production here in Texas in the United States becoming the, essentially the main oil supplier of the world. And so when I say it's the anomaly of the anomaly, there was already high economic growth rates compared to all of human history starting in the Industrial Revolution. So you have essentially 0.0-something percent growth rates or nearly constant leading up before the Industrial Revolution or leading up until you know 1700 or so. And then once you start using coal and steam engines, once this has been invented, you get a skyrocketing use of coal and industrial output, you know, work done by the economy. So that's the first anomaly. And then this phase one, 1945 to the early 1970s, sort of phase two. It's even that anomaly of growth on steroids. Uh, but as a as we biophysical economists might state or ecological economists would state, finite, you know, exponential growth on a finite planet cannot occur forever. And my interpretation is in 1970, we experienced essentially that uh, that mantra. Yeah. You're going to try to grow at 4% a year. Um, you know it can't go on forever. And in 1970, it, it didn't. It stopped. We, we're not growing that fast anymore. And what I'm trying to express in the book, in this yeah, chapter 7, which summarizes these data for the United States, is uh, 
um, from this perspective, it's my interpretation that, yes, this is the example of you can't grow exponentially forever in a finite world. Not everybody agrees with that interpretation, but I'm making the case. That's the best sort of overall concept to interpret the pre-1970 data with the post-1970 data. Yeah, and, and I think, too, the area where maybe folks can poke holes in it is that you know, when you look at what happened in 1970, that you could just as easily point to the OPEC oil embargo as being the reason things went haywire as opposed to just scarcity, like natural scarcity, us sort of bumping up against the environmental limits. I mean, is that is that fair? Yeah, I know. I think that would be a fair argument. And then, so my reply to that argument in a maybe too straw man sense, but in a sense of there's always a substitute and or it's not finite. So if you think the Earth's not finite, then you're sort of saying it's an infinite. Mm -hmm. And what happened in the 70s is the United States, which was the main oil supplier, you know, hit, hit its maximum production capacity, right? And then in the 30s, 40s, 50s, until early 1970s, the Texas Railroad Commission was essentially the cartel, oil cartel of the world. They were the oil cartel. They were dictating prices by telling Texas producers how much they could open the valves in their oil wells. And during that time, the oil valves were not 100% open. By the time you get to 1970, the Texas oil well valves are telling them, okay, you can you can have them 100% open. So once they're full at full capacity, there's no more control over supply uh, to affect the prices. And so in the 50s or 60s, OPEC could have said, I'm going to cut off some oil supply to you. And we would have said, okay, thanks. We're just going to open the valve more in Texas. But once you get to 1970 and OPEC says, hey, we're going to raise prices or cut off supply to you. Uh, and Texas says, okay, we're going to open the valves. And like, oh, it's already 100% open. You don't have any control anymore. Yeah. So in that sense, is aspect of the finite earth that affected OPEC made this kind of political decision because the production capacity of the Western world was essentially tapped out, which is a, which is a, a construct of a finite resource. So there's only a set number of places that the Western world had access to or still control of the oil supply, and they were tapped out. So if the earth's infinite, then... Well, OPEC can never do this because you're just going to go to some other place in infinity and extract some more oil. And so how can OPEC ever restrict your supply? Because the supply is infinite. If it's infinite, OPEC can't ever affect their part of the infinite supply, can't affect my part of the infinite supply. So I still consider it an aspect of the finite earth. Got it. Got it. So, so, so effectively, again, if we're talking about the argument of substitutability is effectively that, well, when all the oil runs out, then we're going to invest more in nuclear, or we're going to invest more in wind power or solar, and we'll always find a replacement for energy. And getting to the, the let's call it the techno-pessimist side, as you say in your in your book, would say- Well, well I call it techno-realist instead of techno-pessimist. Techno-realist. Oh, techno-realist. Sorry. Some, some people have also, I would say, a constructive- critic or someone who's a little bit more on the optimism side asked me why I didn't call it techno-pessimism because I thought realism was more accurate, which says more agnostic in the sense of uh, I'm going to try to put physical notions of the world into my economic model. And I consider that realism, not pessimism. Yeah. So, so let's techno-realism, I think, is, is apt in this case, because effectively what happened is, is there was no substitutability. Once you're tapped out of Texas oil, that's it. There's no more. There's nowhere else to go but OPEC, and that's what gives OPEC this immense power. And so, the second, and that brings us to the second period, which is sort of 1970 to 2000. And so, what what changes in the markets there, and why do we continue to see growth despite the fact that we're seeing energy resources restricted? Right. I'll go. Let me let me remind me. Obviously, come back to your question. Yeah. But you just reminded me of something question we started with, you know, what the economic models get wrong. And one of the things that's difficult is they're usually, quote unquote, equilibrium models and not sort of dynamic uh, system dynamic models that kind of the area I work in, uh, which means they sort of ignore fundamentals of time. And so it's true that you could substitute things. We, you know, how we grow food, we, we substitute, you know, bat guano or and bird droppings for fertilizers with synthetic fertilizers. That's, that's effectively why we have as many people on the planet we have today. If did not invent the Heiberbosch process to make synthetic fertilizers, we would not be able to feed 7.5 billion people. That that's we don't have another we don't have another way to grow enough food. That's that's how it works right now. So in that sense, substitution can happen, but it takes time. Um, so in this sense, in the 1970s, what was the response? The response of the United States and let's say the Western world was formed OECD as a, as a concept and formed the International Energy Agency. 
but it was, okay, look for, where can we find more oil? All right, Gulf of Mexico, North Sea, how can we use oil more efficiently? Okay, get, start efficiency standards. Uh, and the third major thing is stop using oil in things where it's easy to use something else. Uh, and that mostly meant stop using oil in things that stand still. Oil is great to use in things that move around, cars and planes and trains. Uh, there is a lot of other options to use oil, to substitute for oil something else if it stands still, and that's pretty much power plants. They stand still. Mm -hmm. So pretty much stopped using oil in power plants uh, and focused on using oil in things that move around, which is you know, a reshuffling and a restructuring. Uh, so those are the changes that sort of the summary of responses that occurred from the 1970s. So I'm kind of in the camp of maybe, maybe it's really hard for us to tell the difference. Yeah. Does a debt bubble always come with a restriction in energy supply that raises prices and that's the trigger for the debt <laughs> bubble to pop um, or can they come separately? But to your question of this quote unquote phase two from the 1970s until the year uh, to the 2000s roughly or to the early 2000s. Uh, yeah, these were the changes. There were a lot of big changes that happened in the 1970s. Environmentally in the United States, the EPA was formed you know, kind of a revamping or enhancement of clean water and clean air acts. Um, the U.S. got off the gold standard. This would, getting off the gold standard or pegging the U.S. dollar to an amount of gold is a example or essentially is forced upon Nixon at the time or forced upon the government because there's an accumulation of, yeah, too much debt. The, the obligations of the United States to give $35 for an an ounce of gold, if somebody wanted their gold back, if some other country wanted their gold that was in you know, Fort Knox or something like this, uh, there was simply not enough gold uh, to give back anymore. So this fundamental changing of the money supply being linked to a physical substance or any, anything sort of directly physical is, you know, in my view, is a signal of finite world constraints, yeah. right? So let's, if we're going to use money to organize how people do things and distribute things and the relationships between people and economy... And we have a we have a restriction in physical resources in the earth. Well, let's just make this organization not have a direct link to physical resources anymore. And during this time, this is when you really get a much larger increase in the rate of private debt in the economy. Right? It's not linked to physical resource. And private debt is to get thought of differently than government debt, or at least a government like the United States that can print its own money supply. This is what modern monetary theory people discuss all the time. MMT, you know, the government in some sense, can't go bankrupt technically because it prints the own money, its own money of which you pay back, pay back its debt. So it can technically do it. It's not like there's consequences for trying to do that, but it can technically do it. Uh, private sector debt is, is a bit different. And so there's a tremendous growth in private sector debt, essentially during this time leading up into the financial crisis. Banks were, you know, allowed to lend more money to people. Um, people continued to roughly let's just say OECD countries or the United States tend to consume at roughly similar levels after the 1970s kind of got back into things. So if you're kind of consuming at different, at similar levels and the economy is kind of growing slower and the catch there is, okay, well, we have cheaper production of goods because of an increase in globalization and wages kind of took the hit, right? Yeah. So uh, this is where the wage stagnation starts to occur in the United States. And of course, we hear a lot about this since, uh, Obama's presidency in the U.S. kind of emphasizing it after the financial crisis, people were like, oh, wait, yeah, there's a lot of wage inequality that's been going on. And you're like, yeah, it's been going on since the 1970s. Just kind of took a while to sort of catch up. So so my work and my papers gives uh, my, my research on my economic model kind of makes the case that the sort of loss of wage bargaining power that people talk about, the inability to increase wages with inflation starting in the 1970s, and then, you know, Reagan coming in and Margaret Thatcher in the UK kind of union busting and giving the signal that unions aren't going to have the ability to negotiate prices as much because they're going to bust unions. And then the private sector sees that and says, oh, okay, we don't really have to increase prices because I've got the government behind me here. That that's, I'm, I'm kind of trying to understand and making the case that's, that's not a, that's a reaction to physical constraints in the economy. This is a social reaction to physical constraints, constraints in the economy. If the economy could have kept growing it, you know, 4% a year and energy consumption growing at 4% a year wouldn't have had to, maybe we wouldn't have had to deal with that yet. Yeah. Uh, that's just, I think that's a, a response. And this, this kind of gets back to some stuff we've talked about, not just in the last episode, but in a number of episodes, which is you know, the idea that at some point in history, at some point in recent history, 
debt was effectively used. Hold on just a second. Oh, Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. Why? I'm going to ask this question for you. And I'm going to ask this question for the listener, which is, why does my neighbor's landscaper look at my Google calendar to find out when I'm recording so he can show up and start mowing the lawn right when I'm talking? That's, 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 that's a good question. That's, I, it's outside of your field. It happens to a lot of people. It's outside your field of study. It's not why you invited, why I invited you here, but, but just ought, ought to bring that up. So I blame it on your scheduling. You know, when the landscaper comes and you keep scheduling, that's true. you know, he could be saying the same thing about me. That's true. So thank you very much for, for putting that into perspective. So jumping back then, you know, one of the things we've explored on this podcast is the idea that at some point in history, debt markets effectively wallpapered over some underlying structural issues in the economy that were effectively reducing the power of labor or reducing the value of labor. And if I'm interpreting your work correctly, really what what you're saying is that once we started to reach a point of more energy scarcity, that, that effectively started raising the, the real material costs of the economy. And at that point in time, we use debt as a way to finance a certain level of consumption or a certain level of growth that ultimately reduced the purchasing power, reduced the value of labor in monetary terms, and sort of reorganized things in favor of those who own capital. That was a lot that just came out of my mouth, Carrie. Is that roughly correct? And could you fill in the blanks there? If there are right, I probably can't. Yeah, I probably can't speak to everything you said there in terms of things I'm still trying to understand, right? Is debt, uh, you know, how do, how do we think about debt as a consequence of uh, decreased labor bargaining power? Yeah. If you still want to, if you're not earning the same wages in a real sense anymore that you used to, but you still want to buy the same amount of stuff, uh, then technically speaking, yeah, in the sense you can go into debt mm -hmm. uh, to do it. Now, can you af afford this? The affordability of debt is pretty much can you afford the interest payments? So how much debt do you have times what the interest payment is? This is what you have to pay back every month or you know, or year. And the you know they also you know sort of a known main economic change coming out of the 1970s, which you know it took until 1979 to kind of reach the peak with Paul Volcker, right? It's raising central banks or the Federal Reserve raising the interest rates to you know not quite 20 percent but almost I mean, very high rates. Uh, which really put the, the halt on the economy it happened at the same time as the you know Iranian revolution mm -hmm. decreasing oil supply so another oil shock there uh, but before you know in some sense before World War II even and interest rates you know I kind of plot some in, in, in my book from England and a couple other countries in the US were in the you know let's say three four or five percent range and then they were kind of increasing during this phase one this growth period and Paul Harker kind of made them peak out at the end of the 1970s. And then interest rates declined from the, you know, the 19, late 1970s, 1980, all the way until, I mean, effectively the financial crisis and, and afterwards. And we've been pegged near zero. And now at least the United States is trying to raise them a little bit. So with that being said, is you can say, how can you keep accumulating debt and make it affordable? Well, again, the thing you have to pay back is the interest payments. That's the constraining factor. If I have debt times a zero interest rate, well, then there's no... There's no cost to have debt, so that's affordable from a you know, pure budgeting kind of perspective. And so as the economy is accumulating more debt uh, over the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s, and central bank is lowering the interest rate. Uh, this was it's whatever, you know, called the Greenspan put. The Greenspan's like, I got your back. I'm going to lower the interest rates in order to keep the markets running smoothly, which essentially sort of translates to, okay, you can keep refinancing your debt at a lower interest rate and then few years later, lower the interest rates again and say, oh, I've got this debt. Well, let me refinance it at this lower interest rate. Now I can afford it again, et cetera, et cetera. And financial crisis was kind of the culmination of this game's over without making the interest rate go to zero. They didn't go to zero. And you're like, okay, there's, there's so much debt out there that even a tiny interest rate is too much. And then the commodity and energy prices, again, coincided you know, with this peak in debt. And, you know, chicken or the egg, energy prices, debt, and they just come together becomes the question. I'm unsettled on that. I think maybe they just kind of come together. Yeah. And so we didn't really get rid of the debt completely, and but lowered the interest rates and quantitative easing and all this. So, so in the grand scheme of things, I'd look at that from the 1980s till the present as sort of continuously lowering of interest rates as uh, 
you know, this is a, a quote unquote social response, or at least an, an economic response to what's going on in the world. And if you keep in, accumulating higher debt to GDP ratios, in some sense, by definition, that means you're creating more money than the economy is sort of providing in return. Mm. And that's the definition of increasing GDP or increasing debt to GDP is you're, you're sort of betting on more productivity and output coming from the economy that actually then actually ends up happening. Because <laughs> if you, if I, if I issued a dollar in loans and I got a dollar of GDP back, well then the level of debt to GDP over a long period of time would be constant. So the fact that it goes up means you're not getting back the returns you thought you were getting, you're going to get. Yeah. And that, that actually, I want to jump back because that's, that's something that, that I, I started a piece together after reading your book, which is we get to the, we get to around 2000. And as you said, energy consumption peaks effectively. Well, for the United States, energy consumption peaks out, total energy consumption for the world. Okay. And so energy consumption stays constant, but it just moves to other parts of the globe effectively via globalization then? Is that right? Uh, Right, right. So the U.S. has sort of consumed about the same amount of total primary energy since the early 2000s to now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, China, I mean, you can look at the Chinese data. They really ramped up starting in 2000 and they joined the WTO and started increasing manufacturing. Their energy consumption increased it tremendous rates. Okay. So now they consume, you know, much, I can't remember the number, but uh, 30, 40% more than the United States today. Okay. And so, you know, one would argue then that if in 2000 energy production tap, topped out or energy consumption topped out, but economic growth continued, that means that either A, we've just gotten vastly more efficient at using the energy we're consuming or B, that we're using something else to drive the economy. And that would bring us back to the issue of debt, bring us back to the issue of effectively we're financing present consumption via the anticipation of future returns. Is that right? right? Yeah, I wish you could explain this more fully, meaning I understood enough to explain it. But yeah, there's a question, you know, how much of, you know, the metric of GDP has been bastardized, if you will. I mean, people say GDP is a horrible metric, this or that, you know, I'd say traditionally, its concept is good for understanding, yeah, physical production of stuff from the economy, which is sort of how what it was derived to sort of indicate, you know, not to say indicate a measure of social welfare or something. But as they start including things like the fire sectors and finance, insurance and real estate sectors into the concept of economic accounting and GDP, and since those are based upon issuing mortgages and debt to, you know, build houses largely, let's say, for the real estate industry, you... It's not that the house doesn't have value. The house is a physical thing and it has a purpose and a need, you know, uh, for sh- for sure. But how much of, of you know the rents from this are you know clouding the metric of GDP? Right? GDP can go up just because the rent goes up higher, even if you have no new physical structures. Then this can start to distort it, and this I guess gets a little to your question. Like I don't have I don't have the answer here, but I think I think the answer tends to be yes. The issuing more credit in the economy of private debt uh, gets counted as an increase in GDP, and that this might be essentially a point of needed clarification and conclusion or confusion to say, yeah, how do we have the GDP growing up if we're not consuming energy? And let's just say efficiency isn't going yeah, up that rapidly. Yeah, if we're not producing more work. And, and so the other thing I found really interesting getting into 2000 is, is you outline in, in a whole chapter in your book how this also coincides with an increase in political polarization. And can you walk can you walk us through that one? Because that part I really found fascinating. And that gets to the root of a lot of the issues that, you know, trying to get to the bottom of in this podcast. Right. Um, so, yeah, so these are, you know, not not my main research area, but the researchers that calculate, at least for the United States, you know, House and Senate polarization indices, which is essentially a metric of, you know, what proportion of Congress people vote, you know, one way or another on a bill. And is that related to their party affiliation? So a high polarization means that the vote just looks like it's a party line vote and a low polarization looks like, oh, there's a mix of Republicans and Democrats voting for or against some particular uh, bill. And they have data going back until, you know, I guess going back and maybe for all of the uh, uh, Congresses because you have voting records. But I looked at it for my time period of interest from, you know, the early uh, 1900s until the present. And you have relatively high polarization before the Great Depression, and then the Great Depression happens, and FDR and the New Deal, and you have low polarization for essentially sort of the 30s until 
the early 1970s. So relatively low polarization. Again, this is the time at which, at least in the United States, you know, the concept of the middle class and this, you know, I kind of poke in my, in my book, you know, TV shows like Leave it to Beaver and all these kind of things are like, look at this great, happy family and everything's great. And, you know, father goes to work, comes home, mom's there, kids are happy. But the time of everything seems to be grand, aside from, I guess, wondering if you're the nuclear war is going to break out, but at least from polarization no, standpoint. Small worry. Small. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, small worry. Yeah, yeah, learning how to duck under your desk. I didn't do that because I wasn't born yet. Yeah. My parents duck under your middle school desk. Yeah. But then, yeah, in the 1970s, uh, in some sense, this polarization starts to increase. And now it, it seemingly has just increased higher and higher, and it's at higher levels than, than say, in the 1920s. Um, and so I pose the question more, I don't answer the question, I pose the question more as like, hey, this, should we expect polarization to increase like it shows in the data when resources become more scarce or the economy doesn't grow as fast? And it seems like a logical uh, conclusion or say a logical hypothesis to make and test. I reference one, a, a paper in the book and you know, certainly not my area, but I was looking for just was there information to hint at this idea whatsoever and and there was a you know a study of you know college students psychology study as many psychology studies are of, are of college students and uh, I won't go into you know I hear people talk about who do these studies and how they're you know tainted because you have a selected set of people who go to college and you're studying to understand how people think but they're they're obviously a, it's just a subset of people yeah of all people in the world much less a country like the United States anyway they 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 sort of you know they always prime the people getting tested in some way and they primed them in a way I don't recall, but the priming was to give them a hint of scarcity or to give them the concept of scarcity. And their job is to you know, allocate some, you know, some, some widgets or something amongst different groups of people. And if they prime people for scarcity, then they tended to be much more uh, selective. And I think they were asked to select whether different faces were, you know, white or black or something like this. I may be simplifying too much compared to even what I wrote in the book, going to the question, you don't remember everything you wrote. But they became much more selective. If you were primed for scarcity, you became more selective in who was black and who was whiter, who was in one category versus another, uh, which means you became, if you had not as much scarcity, and you, you, weren't, you didn't care as much which group someone was in. You were more likely to make your group bigger. If there was scarcity, you were more likely to make your group smaller and more selective. Mm-hmm. So is that human nature? Uh, I don't know. That's just a couple studies I found. Is it what we see in social environment and politics and on social media, yeah, I'd say that's exactly what we see, right? People, you know, if we just get into you know racism issues and uh, you know nationalism, even right. If, if there's scarcity, you you maybe there's a tendency to have to say, well, okay, I'm going to have to form groups. Who's going to get the stuff if it's more scarce? Is I want my group to do it. Okay, who's my group? Then you come up with rules for who your group is, and maybe you think about these rules more astringently than you used to think about because it's becoming seemingly more important to you to define whoever your group is, whether that's United States or white or whoever you are. Yeah. So I can speak to the polarization part. And part of the reason why I found that chapter fascinating was because if you look at most measures of polarization, they start around the Nixon era. So they start around, you know, right around the civil rights era and so on. And uh, and and the the interesting thing is that's really when politics begins to get attached to identity issues. So that's when we see religion play a larger role in American politics. We see race play a larger role in politics. And I think a lot of times the conclusion that I've reached on this podcast has been the civil rights era was really that that core dividing line. But to kind of add another layer to that, I don't believe you can mobilize people to act in a specific way politically unless they're under stress. So getting back to your point, back in the Leave it to Beaver era, there was fundamentally less stress than there was in the 1970s when there was stagflation. And again, there was this concept of scarcity. And so I feel it is a lot easier to mobilize people behind some layer of identity or behind some tribe when they're feeling stressed, when they're feeling taxed, than it is when things are, are, are plentiful. And, and, you know, this brings us to the present day, which is, you know, in, in your book, you, 
you really outlined four futures, really four kind of potential outcomes for all this. And to kind of just recap everything we've talked about so far, one of the main things we've talked about is how economic models currently don't take into account the energy required to fuel them. And they assume that that level of energy will always be there. And so, uh, you know, just like a bodybuilder can theoretically grow with the right amount of exercise and the right amount of nutritional inputs, if we assume that those nutritional inputs are constant, we can assume that bodybuilder is going to co continue to grow. But we're, we've, there's only so much food in the fridge. I tie everything back to food on this podcast. I don't know why, Carrie, but, but there's, only, there's only so much food in the fridge and the I, and, and we don't have any available substitute for that food just yet. So bringing us to the, to the future now, you know, fossil fuels are necessary. Uh, they're not getting more plentiful. And we don't seem to replace energy sources in so much as we add on to them. So could you talk about those four futures and, and kind of where we might land as this plays right. out? Well, in the sense of these four futures, I, and it, I, I didn't invent them myself. I just took them from David Holmgren, who was kind of the inventor or sort of founder of the idea of permaculture. And I thought, you know, why? You know, why, why come up with my own phrasing and stuff if somebody else has done a, a job that it seems sufficient for me, yeah. at least for my purposes in this book. So he kind of has four, you know, catchphrases or, or summaries of these. So one is techno explosion, uh, one techno stability, one is energy descent, and the other one is collapse. Uh, so techno explosion is where we just keep inventing stuff and uh, Elon Musk figures out how to live on Mars and people can go to Mars if they want and that's fine. And, and we, you know, solve the climate crisis on earth and mars is great earth is great uh everything's fine we've got low carbon energy we figured out fusion uh and we you know maybe we still use fossil fuels but we mitigate them or maybe we don't but whatever we figured it out techno stability is we don't figure out everything um, but we can kind of maintain you know good ways of life or something you know maybe we don't go to mars but we've managed to figure out how to maintain uh Earth system processes, we've made energy substitution as necessary to deal with environmental issues, climate change, but maybe you're kind of, a, you know, in some sense, steady state-ish a little bit, and but the things are generally okay. Energy descent is a slow loss of capabilities over time, you know, punctuated by events that trigger things, you know, debt, debt crises or something like this, which cause restructuring, and you can't quite get back to where you were before. You forget how to do some things, population slowly declines, but maybe it occurs slowly enough that, you know, for each generation, it's not a dramatic change, uh, but maybe you still notice that it's changing and it collapses while well, you, you couldn't even manage a, an energy descent. Something catastrophic happens. You know, maybe you're, you, you don't find substitutes for oil and natural gas in time. And for some reason, you know, they become just too hard to extract or too expensive to extract and supply chains break across the world or nuclear war or who knows what, right? Yeah. Something happens and you're just kind of, you can't maintain what you have and it just goes down uh, quickly and, you know, sort of the dystopia, Mad Max kind of scenario. You end up in kind of a Mad Max era. So where do you think we're headed? This is a non-binding comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I, I don't know, I, I would have said this in the 70s and then, if I was thinking these things in the 1970s, probably, uh, and then wonder if I've been correct now or if I'm sitting here in 2020. And I would have said, yeah, you can't you know, grow forever on a finite planet. So I'm just saying the same thing. I would have been in that camp or I'm in that camp now. So I don't I have a hard time on techno explosion. I'm just kind of having a conversation recently about this. Do I really think a significant number of people are going to you know, go to some other planet and it's going to be better to be on that planet than Earth? That's, yeah. Maybe I don't think about it enough. It's hard for me to imagine. I was kind of thinking, well, uh, even worse Earth situation, probably better than a good Mars situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm somewhere in probably in the, in the in the time frame of looking to 2100 or a little after. I'm kind of in the energy descent camp. I would say, if I had to guess, you know, yeah. if I had to put my my thumb on one, that well, sort of, you know, and in some sense, slowly decline. I don't know about the collapse. It's in some sense, we're sort of. Mm -hmm human resilient and reactionary enough that, you know, things are going really bad, we'll react in a way to keep the system going a little bit. And in effect, the 1970s was kind of that. They're like, well, how do we kind of keep capitalism and the basic system going and maintain profits? And it's like, well, uh, it looks like in order to do this in the face of some 
physical resource constraints, we're going to have to sacrifice a little bit on wages and wage equality. We're going to have to, you know, that's going to have to go a little bit. And so that seems to be roughly what happened. And so that might fall into this camp of a sort of energy descent type of reaction. Uh, everything's still roughly the same, but there is some decline in some metrics. Yeah. Um, that's, I also go into that camp because I'm not, you know, part of this is my research is to try to understand this more fully is, you know, I'm not seeing the industrial renewables providing the same services as sort of fossil fuel supply chain uh, at the same cost. So I think they can do a lot. We can certainly electrify a lot, cars, heating, cooling. I think it's a little bit more expensive in terms of driven by the fundamentals of the energy and, and resource requirements. Obviously, when they operate, they don't need a lot of resources to operate, but they're highly technological, require expertise. And so that might create another, uh, they're essentially a big pieces of capital and people who invest in big pieces of capital want to get paid back for them. And, you know, if they don't have a lot of operating cost jobs and they're all upfront capital investments, then you, you're essentially a rent seeker. You know, if you own, you know, wind and solar plants and battery stores, you need the rents paid to pay back the capital. And that comes from everybody else in the economy uh, paying that back. So that's kind of like more debt and more capital rent seeking than we have to shift to this energy system. Um, so that's kind of why I don't necessarily, it's not obvious that it's a wage equality solution, right? Although this is posed a lot, but it doesn't seem, it's not clear that that's the case. And it's driven by the fact that, yeah, it's, it's a bunch of capital investments. And who says a bunch of capital, in, you know, the right capital investments can be uh, you know, productive in a way that, you know, gives people wages and all this kind of thing. But this is the core energy part of the economy, right? This is the thing that is trying to get cheaper. And if you want to transition quickly, you're investing a lot uh, quickly. That means a lot of people are working in the industry. Uh, materials are going to the industry. And that means a, that's like making the energy sector bigger uh, in, the, in, the, in the transition. And there's, that means there's a smaller portion of the people in the economy that are paying the wages of people in the energy sector. And as, so if the energy sector is bigger, that's like pre-industrial, right? Yeah. We started the podcast here. The energy sector was huge, pre-industrial, yes. and yeah. growth was slow. So if we shift quickly and we make the energy sector bigger, um, this is like too much drilling, oil drilling going on, and people in the oil sector earning too much money. The rest of the economy can't afford to pay them all the, you know, $120 a barrel, $130 a barrel continuously for years, because uh, the rest of the economy isn't structured to allocate that much money to that sector. So we get a collapse of like we did after the 2000s or mid uh, 2010s. So the transition to renewables, I'd see would have a similar effect. And this goes back to what the most economic models get wrong. They're not accounting for time and dynamics in a proper way. So that's why they don't think the rate of the shift to renewables has an effect on the economy. They're like, of course it should have a shift because the faster you do it, the more you're shoving all this investment into a shorter and shorter time frame. And the more you would make the energy sector get bigger and bigger during that time frame. And if, if we have too much energy spending on energy relative to GDP, this causes recessions. It's usually driven by oil, but you could do it for summing, you know, it's all energy investments. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going to yeah, so go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, I think the thing I picked up from from your book and I, I tend to be in your camp, which is I, I'm not too optimistic or too too pessimistic, but. I definitely think that we have, we're a society, I mean, America specifically is a society sort of built on overconsumption. You know, you look at the, the, the growth in the waste management and storage sectors speak to that. Uh, we have 60% rate of obesity in this country. There's lots of evidence out there that we're consuming more resources than we have to. And so I think what I, what I pulled away from, from your book as maybe a positive, if you want to call it that, is that yes, you know, and we're kind of already seeing this now with supply chain issues, there will be some belt tightening and there'll be fewer creature comforts than we're used to, but we'll also probably consume limited resources at a much slower clip and maybe even make a transition over to sustainability in that process. I don't think it's gonna come without any pain. I think the wild card to something you said earlier is does somebody use a nuke? That's like a legitimate, I mean, the next, I think, 10 to 15 years, that's a legitimate concern. But if we can get out of the next decade without that, I, I do think we might be looking at a future where maybe we're not, you know, choosing to put a blanket on ourselves because we have the air conditioner up too high, to give an example, you know? I don't know how you feel about right. that, but... Yeah, I mean, the average person in 
Western world or so in the U.S., you know, is not, you know, hadn't seen a lot of games in the last 50 years or 40 years, even though the global economy has increased, right? So this, the global average citizen has a lot further, you know, to go to catch up to the average U.S. citizen, kind of as you're saying. So, so it seems to the U.S. person that things are getting worse. And the answer is, okay, yeah, they, they're, prob- they're probably are slightly getting worse, um, but they're not horrible uh, for the most part. And it's, but, you know, if you're going to create groups, in groups and out groups, and you're like, well, I'm, I'm the U.S., I'm American. Mm-hmm. You know, do I care about what's going on in some other part of the world? And, you know, again, and then you have economists talking about, well, the whole global utility has gone up. And I think there's, you know, there's some, that general statement is some justification for that. But, you know, how much does an individual person care to, to, to think about that, and they're going to elect their officials, elected officials here in the U.S. They're not electing someone somewhere else. Oh yeah, and <laughs> yeah. So that's so that's what they see, right? They ex- experience uh, things, and so a person like myself or some other economist or who, a scientist or whoever who's saying, "Well, I've got these abstract models, and here's what they kind of tell me is going on, and here's how I think about the future," based upon that, uh, you know, I was listening to some, some, some statements, and there's another guy, you know, Tom Murphy, and the uh, UC San Diego is a physicist and he has a do the math blog and he's on a, a recent podcast by you know, Nate Hagan saying that and what do you call it the uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name like the personality test where you kind of yeah. assign these letters uh, that you know sort of categorize people and oh, yeah. made, or the, the Briggs-Myers uh, right is that Briggs-Myers the one? test yeah. yeah so and he I had never thought about this before but he says oh like 27 percent of people the population overall I don't know if that's U.S. or global, yeah. uh, are sort of in the abstract thinking camp. And then, I mean, 73% are the people in the camp of, well, you have to experience something or you sense it. That, that's how you learn more. You learn more by experiencing things. So if 73% of the people learn best by experiencing something, well, you know, that's not making an economic model, right? Yes. <laughs> that's not listening to somebody yeah. to say what their economic model or my biophysical economic model tells them. So they're like, well, I'm not listening to Carrie. You know, I don't learn that way. So those of us that do think that way, it's like, well, we're fighting one quarter against three quarters of the population. How are we going to win on a way to think? So uh, that that seems to be a conundrum as, as well. So so that's why it's hard for us to, to think ahead. But in some sense, the economy and normal ways of creating markets based on you know marginal prices is says, just, just react to what's going on now. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't think ahead too much. I hope you enjoyed this frightening episode, and if you did, please leave it a review. It helps for me to know exactly what it is I'm doing right here. I have also included a bunch of resources from Carrie in the show notes, so be sure to check those out as well. Now, as Carrie laid out, periods of economic growth have always been accompanied by a decrease in the price of energy, and that's either energy in the form of food, agricultural technology, or more recently, from fossil fuels. And we also never actually replace one energy source, but we merely stack it on top of pre-existing ones. And this means that any breakthrough in renewable energy might just result in us consuming more energy and burning the same amount of oil and coal. And what scared me the most in this conversation is the link he makes between political polarization and energy prices as it solidifies a lot of what we talked about in the past episodes, but also in a number of episodes prior. And the link between resource scarcity and political conflict isn't anything surprising, but it does seem as if wealthy nations have masked this increasing scarcity with increasing debt. And maybe income inequality isn't simply a case of our monetary system being rigged Uh, as it is a symptom of our money becoming less valuable against the resources we need to survive. And the problem we're facing now is that debt-fueled consumption allows us to push beyond the environmental boundaries set for us. We continue to consume more and more of a finite resource without any improvements in how those resources are allocated, and there's no amount of monetary policy or any size stimulus check that's going to put more oil in the ground. And I wouldn't call this next statement a silver lining, but maybe a less gray part of a really dark cloud is the fact that wealthy nations have a long way to fall. And it will no doubt be painful, 
but maybe an economic contraction where we have one television instead of three or four, or where we turn the lights off when we're not using them, or where we don't eat ourselves to the point of giving ourselves diabetes might not be the worst thing in the world. And this conversation hit me personally, and I've been looking at my consumption habits since, so hopefully it gives you all some food for thought. We're going to continue to explore this idea and what it means for democratic institutions worldwide, so I hope you stick with it. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.